Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of our 7 Investing Podcast. I'm 7 Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson, and today we're going to be talking about drug developers. There's a trend that's developing out there right now, personalized medicine, and there's a flood of interest in companies that are creating new drugs based on innovative new technologies. But as an investor, how can we actually hope to value these companies that are so early in their life cycle, often before they even have any revenue whatsoever? And to answer questions like those, I'm so glad to be joined by my seven investing colleague, our lead advisor, Max Chatsko. Uh, Max, I know that you follow the life sciences industry pretty closely. It's kind of nice to be chatting with you here on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks. I just started digging into all this stuff, but uh, this is a good way to maybe quantify, um, you know, what is a drug worth? What's this pipeline worth? And, you know, there's still models, but uh, I think it'll get you pretty close to a good answer. Perfect. Well, maybe my first question is to start at that 10,000 foot level, right? Because so much of, of investing, at least in mature industries and mature companies, is valuation multiples, right? It's price of revenue, price of cash flow, price of earnings, whatever it might be. That doesn't really apply when you're dealing with a, uh, a, a before, pre-commercial drug developer. Uh, what is this space like? What are the companies in the areas that you look at tend to look like? Yeah, it's interesting, right? If we have a tech company, you have some revenue, and even if it's not profitable, you can you know use discounted cash flow models or look out years into the future and say, you know what, this is going to be worth this much maybe, even if the premiums come down. Uh, so this is like has a good value, right? It's growing quickly. Maybe margins are expanding. In drug development, we don't have that, right? And in, in pre pre commercial drug developers, I should clarify, uh, they don't have revenue, they don't have earnings, they don't have cash flow. They might have revenue from milestone payments, but it's not recurring revenue. They don't have product sales, right? Every quarter. Uh, so the way that these are, you know, it, it can be. It, it seems like a black box, right? How is this valued at three billion dollars? It has a couple assets in phase one clinical trials that are one in phase two, and and how do we even arrive at what's a fair valuation? What if none of it works? And the way that the industry does this, both drug developers and also Wall Street analysts, is they build these uh, net present value models. Uh, so each, you know, drug in the pipeline will have a, a value assigned to it based on the probability that it reaches market, which means it has a probability of generating cash flows in the future. So it looks very similar to some of these, uh, you know, discounted cash flow uh, models that uh, investors might be more familiar with. But uh, we just tweak it a little bit with some metrics that are unique and inherent to, uh, to drug development. And, uh, and that's how it works. So let's dig a little bit more into those models, because I think that's important, you know, as a valuation tool for this space. Uh, quarterly earnings probably are not as important for these kinds of companies as a result of data from their, from their clinical trials that they have ongoing. We often at times, Max, see these companies can pop, you know, 30%, 50%, sometimes even more than 100% in their stock prices in a single day. Uh, why is there so much volatility in these and how does that relate to these models you're talking about? Yeah, so, you know, um, earnings are not very important in terms of the quarterly updates, right? And a lot of companies now in the, in the header of the, the press release will just say business update. You know, here's our Q1 business update because they know, they don't, you know, what, what are their earnings going to tell you? Really nothing. Um, and when they do have data or maybe a, a partnership or a regulatory event, uh, we do see some of these big pops or sometimes if the data are not good, uh, we can see the stock crater as well. And that leads to this perception that, you know, trading or, or I'm sorry, uh, investing in, you know, these stocks is, uh, is binary, right? These are binary events. Um, you know, for the seven years it takes to develop a drug, only five days might really matter for any single asset. And we have these big spikes or big drops. And that's 
partly true. Uh, but what really is happening is when there's when data are released, uh, all of those models on Wall Street are getting updated with that new information. Um, so that's what causes these to be binary. Uh, it's really when the models are updated, right? And that's because it's so challenging to really get a good hold on, you know, what are um, what's a fair valuation for some of these companies, especially if they're in new areas, right? I mean, think about like gene editing. We don't have any historical data for what's the success rate of a gene editing um, or, you know, maybe some new cell therapies. We have no idea. Um, so those can tend to be a little bit more volatile. So one of the most important metrics uh, is probability of success. Do you know what that is, Simon? I sure, I've heard it before. POS, Max, <laughs> tell me more about this. Yeah, so probability of success is really like the most important metric that goes into these net present value calculations. Um, and from what I found, there's a couple different flavors. So there's just straight up net present value calculations. And then there's also something called risk adjusted net present value calculations. So we abbreviate that with a lowercase r and then capital NPV. Those tend to be a little bit more accurate uh, during development itself. Both of these NPV and RNPV can arrive at the same numbers at the end, but that could be years away. So as investors, it's, it's maybe good to check in uh, throughout development. So I, I would like to use risk-adjusted net present value. And the difference is risk-adjusted net present value takes into account that an asset can get de-risked. So it has a higher probability of success as it advances through each stage of development. So in the last decade, from 2011 to 2020, a drug that entered phase one clinical trials had a 7.9% chance of reaching the market. So that was the overall probability of success for any drug candidate in the entire industry. Now you can get very granular with this, and this is how you know, more accurate models are built. So you can look at specific therapeutic areas. So that number changes drastically uh, depending on the area, the diseases that you're treating. So for oncology drugs, only 5.3% that entered phase one clinical trials reached the market in the last decade. But if you look at hematology, so blood disorders, that number jumps to 23.9%. So in different areas, they have different uh, amounts of risk or different likelihoods of success. And sometimes, you know, for oncology, I mean, there's a lot of smaller drug developers as well, right? So there's more drugs. So N, the number of total drugs being looked at and in, in, in that calculation is much larger. And some of those maybe aren't going to be successful to begin with. You know, smaller drug developers rarely uh, under a certain market cap, I think it's under $300 million, uh, rarely get a, a cancer drug approved. So they might be, you know, closer to 0%, but you can kind of get the idea. So with probability of success, we calculate that by looking at the phase-to-phase uh, -phase transition rates. So uh, for any drug in the industry, we'll go back to just 10,000-foot view. Um, so we'll say 100 drugs enter clinical trials, right? Phase one. Out of those, only 52 are actually going to make it to phase two clinical trials. So it's a pretty small number. Um, and then of those drugs, only 28.9% are actually going to reach phase three. So most drugs actually fail in phase two clinical trials. And this makes sense. So it's kind of like the valley of death, I guess you would say, for drug development, right? Phase one clinical trials, we're trying to optimize dosing. We're getting some early signals about safety and efficacy. Um, not too many big hurdles to jump over. Phase two, we're asking deeper questions, more, more uh, uh, detailed questions, right? We want some uh, clear signals of efficacy. We really want to get a good handle on safety. There's more patients involved. Um, and of course, you know, if you, a drug developer is not sure, 
about uh, the success, then it might just have a, you know, it makes a go, no go decision. Do we want to move this into phase three? Because uh, that's going to be several more years of development and a lot more money invested as well. Um, so a lot of assets don't make it out of phase two. And then if you make it to phase three, it's about a coin flip overall for the whole industry of whether or not it's actually going to be approved. Uh, so anyway, you know, proof of, I'm sorry, uh, probability of success is uh, really the, one of the most important metrics that goes into these risk adjusted at present value calculations. Yeah, there's a lot of good insight in that, Max. I want to double click on a couple of those things you said first, but kind of to frame up everything, uh, the NPV, the net present value calculations are, since we don't have current revenues, we have the promise of something potentially being commercialized in the future. We think that it might be worth this much in sales. We start at the future, we say, if we actually get this, this big old commercial get approved, this is what it looks like. We discount those back to the present value and can incorporate kind of our probability of success in there in the middle of how likely is it that we actually get there. But then that current value of the asset summed across all of the assets that a company has in development right now is kind of a, a decent proxy for what we think the company is worth. Is that a fair assessment of what we're doing here? Yes. And, you know, again, these are imperfect models um, and they're all estimates. No one actually knows the probability of success for any single drug candidate. We can use historical averages all day long, uh, but some are going to have much higher. Some are going to have no chance at all. Um, so, you know, combining that with maybe a, a technical understanding of a specific drug class or a therapeutic modality or what makes a, a company's approach maybe have a, a little bit uh, more de-risked compared to the industry average, uh, that could go a long way. Um, and again, we're also using, you know, what are the cash flows going to be? So we're kind of estimating peak sales, which can have a large Delta, you know, you could be off or, uh, maybe significantly underestimate as well. Uh, and again, drug development takes a very long time, right? Many years. Um, I, th I think we're starting to see that kind of accelerate. So we're seeing drugs be developed in shorter timeframes. I think the rule of thumb used to be about 10 years. But we're seeing that come down quite a bit and um, maybe five to seven might be more accurate nowadays. And of course, if you have a really good drug asset and it gets accelerated approval pathways or breakthrough therapy designation, maybe you can get to market even sooner. Um, but again, that long time frame in years affects your discount rate. So you need a, a much higher discount rate to make up for, you know, how long you have to wait and all the risks involved as well. So actually one example though of uh you know, how it can go wrong or how these are all models. Um, so again, we said like when data come out uh, for a company, you know, that can have a big effect on the share price one way or the other. And that's because all those models are getting updated on a single day. This is also true for when a, a drug developer, like a larger drug developer is going out and making an acquisition. Um, it might apply a higher probability of success for a pipeline or a pipeline asset that it's acquiring. And that's part of where that premium comes from. Uh, so it's using like a higher probability of success than maybe Wall Street was factoring in. So it's a good example. Um, in 2014, Johnson & Johnson went out and acquired Covigen. And it had an anti-TNF uh, bispecific antibody. So uh, anti-TNF is what Humira is based on, right? So big cash cow is right now the best-selling drug in the world. So Johnson & Johnson said, give us some of that. And they applied a probability of success to this asset. It was in phase one clinical trials of 26%. So they thought it had a one in four chance of reaching the market and everyone else basically had about a 15% probability of success tagged on to that. So that uh, 
is an example of why that premium got applied, right? Johnson Johnson in their own internal models said, hey, you know what? We feel pretty good about this or better than everyone else. We're going to go gobble this up. Now, Johnson & Johnson is the largest company in the world, right? So it has more cash to throw around and it has more data, of course, right? It has a, a lot of scientists, a lot of really smart people working there. Uh, and actually this drug failed in clinical development. So Johnson Johnson acknowledged that, right? It said one in four chance of reaching the market, uh, but it did fail due to safety reasons in later stage development. So this is a good example that, you know, how imperfect these are. And this is really just used to maybe help add a little quantification uh, to biotech investing. Um, and it's a good reminder as well. I mean, there's calculators that anybody can use online. Um, but if you're going in there and plugging in numbers that are unrealistically high, and as you might have, you know, reasoned from uh, the probability of success is 7.9% for any drug in the last decade. Um, you know, even 20% in the wrong area is like unrealistically high, right? So if you're just slapping in these, these high percentages and you get a really high number for what this stock might be worth, uh, chances are you're probably going to be wrong. So these can be very dangerous in the wrong hands as well. So just a word of caution, if you're playing around with some of these online calculators, uh, Johnson & Johnson can be wrong. Most of us are going to be wrong too most of the time, right? Fair enough. Yes. You, buyer beware when you're using those online calculators to figure out the success of the drug. <laughs> it's interesting though, Max, I mean, you, you mentioned that they're kind of the role of, of big pharma in all of this, you know, J&J &J and the other guys that have a lot of deep pockets that kind of puts a floor maybe on a lot of these, these new drug developers. I know that Aswath the Motorin, you know, who is uh, kind of this legendary professor of finance at NYU years ago, was looking at the returns on investment for big pharma companies, uh, for them to just go out and pursue innovative science completely from the ground up, like you said, those single digit chances of success, probability of success in phase one, versus to let those assets go through trials, let the, uh, the smaller companies develop them on their own, and then go ahead and purchase them in later stages. And his conclusion was for big, for, for big pharma, it actually was more advantageous uh, from a profitability perspective and for an investor's returns perspective to wait, to let these companies grow on their own and then buy them up when they're later and there's a higher probability of success. And so I think that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, larger companies, there's like this weird, you know, once a, once a drug developer has enough success, it's generating a lot of revenue. Maybe it has a valuation in the tens of billions of dollars. Well, at a certain point, uh, those drugs are kind of fading, right? They're losing market share. Maybe they're losing patent protection and these successful drug developers kind of hit a wall and they have to start really nailing their development to replace those lost revenues. And it's tough to grow further beyond a certain level. So you see them, they do turn to acquisitions. And we saw, you know, in the last decade with, um, remember the patent cliff was a big worry, maybe at the, maybe 10 years ago now, geez. Um, and so there's a lot of big acquisitions, right? Uh, all the major drug developers are trying to stock their pipelines with new assets, new pipeline technologies. And a lot of those didn't really work out so well. Um, so, uh, like you said, uh, with that analysis, um, maybe we can tweet that out or something, uh, maybe a little dated now, but I think the, the points are still valid. Um, yeah, it does help to maybe, you know, look at later stage assets because they're, they are more de-risked and that's why later stage drug developers, even if they don't have a drug on the market, uh, tend to have a higher valuation, right? We have a little bit more assurance that they, uh, are going to be successful or, uh, at least, you know, they have a higher chance of success. So. So, so on that note, and while I have you here, Max, I, I want to make sure that we, we talk about the science, the foundational science of all of this, right? I, I think that one of my things I've really enjoyed with having you on the seven investing team is that you're so far ahead 
of, of so many other investors and analysts out there and really digging into the science and what's going on out there. And so let's talk about IP because this industry is built upon patents. Like you said, you get two decades of exclusive rights to a certain molecule you develop or a certain science that you have uh, in your IP war chest. But you also mentioned that kind of there's a difference between more established technology that's out there that people are building upon and that scientists understand versus the stuff that's really, really cutting edge, right? We talked just about Humira, right? For uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, pretty well understood. You know, there's different variations of that. And even AbbVie is developing. It's kind of next wave of replacements for Humira now uh, versus something that, that's much more cutting edge, right? We're seeing all of these kind of oncology drugs, these personalized medication drugs. I mean, even Alzheimer's has been talked about with biochin, the uncurable disease with a very, very low, if not near zero probability of success, at least historically. As an investor, are you more drawn to the more established science that's a little bit more understood by the industry with a higher probability of success? Or do you want to go out there and swing for the fences knowing it's a less chance of actually getting commercialized, uh, but there's a huge reward because it's so competitive and challenging to do? Or is it somewhere in the middle of those and it's not a rule of thumb one way or the other? I would say it's not a rule of thumb, but you are correct in that, you know, as we said, I think a lot of the value of biotech investing where you might beat Wall Street or beat the market is by uh, getting to those opportunities faster, discovering those before Wall Street does, right? Now, again, that's, that's still challenging. Um, but in terms of, you know, do I want to play around and, and, and give more attention to newer therapeutic modalities versus those that are established? Uh, I think it's a little mix of both. So, Something that I've drawn to is I think, you know, genetic medicines are going to have a higher probability of success across the board. So like RNA interference was kind of the first to get there. And they're picking now well-defined targets, at least as far as going to the liver is considered. Um, and Al Nylum has data that their probability of success for an asset in phase one is 60%. So that's like, you know, almost 10 times the industry average. So RNAi directed to the liver for a well-defined genetic target is just money in the bank. Um, now, I actually think this is probably going to be true for other genetic medicines. Uh, we just saw with CRISPR gene editing, of course, right? Intelli had just crushed it on its uh, you know, preliminary phase one results, but that demonstrated that they can rationally design something that's going to go into the liver, um, knock out a gene of interest with a, it's actually one of the same ones that Alan Island went after. So it's a validated genetic target. Um, and it, it knocked it out of the park, right? So I think that kind of proves that we can probably design similar assets for other genetic targets uh, using real, that. Real quick, was, it, was that pun intended, knocking it out of the park for the knockout? <laughs> I, 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 caught, I caught on that, Max. It might have been subtle. <laughs> I'm talking to uh, Matt too much lately, I guess. Uh, his, his dad jokes are wearing off. But yeah, so I think, you know, and if you design those well and they're very selective, um, you're going after a specific mRNA transcript or a specific gene, then there shouldn't really be any side effects, right? So that kind of changes the game a little bit where, you know, traditionally we design these, you know, small molecule inhibitors in cancer and it might have activity against a specific target, uh, but it might also whack like half a dozen other things. And that's where side effects come from. You know, you're targeting something that's the tumors making, but you're also accidentally having activity against really important proteins, you know, in someone's gastrointestinal tract. And that's why they have like nausea or vomiting or diarrhea. And sometimes they have to discontinue treatment altogether. Um, so it makes sense that like very well rationally designed uh, genetic medicines 
because they're going so far upstream, right? DNA and RNA, that's as far as you can go, uh, are going to have very high probabilities of success. And I think if we make more selective drugs as well uh, against any target, right, that's kind of where it is. That's, they should have higher probabilities of success. So, you know, I don't care what the therapeutic modality is, but the underlying technology platform, you know, if that can de-risk drug development sooner, design more selective drugs, I think that's really what it comes down to. And two more questions for you, Max. The first is, you know, our audience, obviously individual investors who might be interested in this space. It sounds like there's a lot of risk inherent with these types of companies. How would you recommend investors approach investing in biotech, knowing that you have to be comfortable with a lot of these risks you just mentioned? I'm sorry, can you say that again? You're, uh, you're quiet there at the end. I would recommend an individual investor approach the, uh, investing in biotech companies, knowing that there's a lot of risks that are on the table. Yeah. So, well, my approach is, um, well, I guess there's two approaches, right? So this is how I explain it. You can have a top-down approach. So you just say, Hey, you know, um, uh, you know, gene therapy, I think is going to be big. I'm going to go buy a basket of gene therapy stocks. And that way you're spreading risk across a therapeutic modality. And, you know, some of those are going to succeed very, like very successful, be very successful. Some are going to fail, but hopefully the winners make up for the losers. Right. Um, I do a bottom up approach. So I try to understand an area, uh, really thoroughly, right? At the ground level, I read a lot of scientific literature, very boring. Uh, try to understand what are the challenges of a new technology because nothing's perfect. And then also what are the opportunities? How can this be used? Where does it make sense? Where does it not make sense? Uh, and then I look at the competitive landscape. So I try to understand all the companies that are in this space. And then I'll try to like narrow it down to like one, two, three companies. I'll read through the SEC filings, you know, see how their commercial strategy stacks up. Um, and sometimes I don't make any investment or any recommendation. Um, sometimes there just isn't anything there. Right. So I don't force it, but you know, every once in a while you're like, Oh, this is the company in this specific space. Uh, so that's my bottom up approach. So yeah, it, look, inherently it is risky. Even if we have more accurate models than wall street, again, probably of success overall is pretty low. So, uh, it's going to be really hard to avoid the losers and the failures, right? That's just part of, uh, how this space operates. But, uh, I mean, this is similar for all investing in any industry, Simon, right? I mean, your winners usually dictate your portfolio's returns and more than make up for your losers. So um, there's ways to constrain risk. Um, and I think my framework over the years has, has proven that. And I'm really happy to dig in. I'm, I'm starting to look into these, you know, risk-adjusted net present value calculations, a new tool in my toolkit. I think I can uh, uh, increase my success levels even higher. So. Perfect. And then my last question, Max, while I have you here, is what are those ponds that you're fishing in? Can you give me two... Uh, developing technologies being used for drug development that you're really interested in, you're taking a closer look at right now? Two technologies being used. Um, I really am interested in uh, bispecific antibodies. So traditionally, we have antibodies that go in, uh, they have one target that they are active against. A bispecific antibody uh, can attach to two targets simultaneously. So sometimes it can be used to stimulate the uh, immune system and also have anti-cancer activity as well. So they can attach to a tumor. So if they can attach to a tumor and an immune cell. They can bring the immune cell to the tumor. Now, we're still figuring all this out. There's a lot of interest here, but, uh, and, and they can go very wrong. There's a lot of, uh, some, when it doesn't work, there's a lot of side effects. It's not very good for patients. But we are seeing when they're rationally designed, uh, they can have a lot of, they have similar uh, efficacy and similar safety to some of these cell therapies, right? Like CAR T or even natural killer cells. 
they're a lot easier to manufacture. We have a lot of, we know how to make antibody drugs, right? Way easier to make than cell therapies, um, easier to administer a lot of times. Um, these can be used subcutaneously where uh, sometimes, you know, you need to go to a, uh, have an infusion for a cell therapy. So you have to go to a special center that can handle that. Um, and right now it depends again on, on what targets you're going after, but uh, they can also be dosed multiple times uh, in certain settings. So uh, that's another potential advantage it has. Uh, over some of these cell therapies, but uh, cell therapies, I think is, we just got to engineer those a little bit better, but uh, that would be another area I'm very interested in. There's a lot of cool companies out there. Um, I think next-gen CAR-T, if we can get around some of those uh, side effects that are worrisome, natural killer cells look pretty good as well, right? They seem to uh, avoid all of those, the three major side effects of CAR-T. Uh, and then there's a lot of newer and different uh, therapeutic modalities in cell therapies using different cells. Uh, and there's companies that want to just engineer your cells in your body. So they don't want to, we don't have to manufacture them. We'll just edit them as they are uh, to maybe fix or treat or cure disease. So um, really interested in how we can affect disease at the cellular level. So uh, biospecific antibodies and a whole basket of cell therapies I'm really interested in. Sounds like some good stuff to keep an eye on. Really exciting space here, Max. And not only uh, from an investing angle, but also in the terms of saving people's lives and the good that it's going to do for society as a whole. I really like your technical approach. I'm really looking forward to, to learning more about how we value these types of companies. Thanks very much for being on the podcast this morning. Yeah, thanks. We'll have to do an update whenever I uh, see how my models are doing, or maybe we'll, we'll walk through one. Absolutely. Part two, to come still in the future with, with Max Chatsko talking about biotech and, and drug development. Um, if you'd like to hire Max to find some really interesting biotech companies and some drug developers out there, you can do so by signing up with 7investing today. In fact, as this will be published, uh, we'll have less than 36 hours left to lock in our current rates of only $17 a month or $170 a year. Uh, we're going to be increasing that on July the 8th. So take advantage of the opportunity at 7investing.com slash subscribe to sign up today, get access to all of Max's official recommendations. In fact, you'll get access to all seven of our monthly official seven recommendations, seven investing recommendations each and every month. Thanks very much for joining us on this episode of our seven investing podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are studying this. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.